Welcome to TC Talks. In this week's episode, we tackle common misconceptions about the school system and your child's place in it. Here are your hosts, David Hill and Liam Powers. All right, welcome back, everybody, and welcome back, Dave, for our second episode I'm of excited. TC Talks. Yeah, uh, welcome, Liam. I hope everything's going well. We've reached October now. We have. Yes. Very, very crucial part of the school year where everyone starts to realize what's going on. A lot of parent-teacher conferences going on right now. So for those of you who've gone in for the five minutes to find out something about your child for the first time in probably over a year and a half or so, welcome. Uh, But yeah, a lot of things. We're very busy right now. A lot of kids coming in. Feels like kind of normal-ish more again. It's kind of nice. Normal's an interesting word, but certainly it does. It feels like 2019, if you will. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about, for lack of a better term, misconceptions. Uh, Things that we have heard as working in the education industry for, Dave, you 17, 18 years? How how old are you now? I'm like too old. Uh, I believe 17 years now. Oh, actually, oh, more than 17 years. Yeah. And I am coming up on number 10, the Big Ten uh, with Tutoring Club. So, you know, we've met with thousands of families. Uh, Gosh, I'd actually hate to total up the number. A lot. Uh, And there are certain things that we hear repeatedly over and over and over that are nice, cute sound bites. But when we dig a little bit deeper, they don't really show fact. Uh, So, you know, there's these facts, these opinions, these fallacies, and for lack of a better term again, misconceptions. So, I want to talk about some of the things that you have heard quite a bit. Um, we can start just about anywhere. Uh, let's talk about early ages. So, you know, there is this thing that comes up when your student is not grasping, say, reading, something really fundamental when they're five, six years old, and the school might approach you as a parent and say, you know, your student's in danger of maybe being held back, or more friendly, it would probably, you know, be beneficial potentially for them to be held back. Uh, And there's a lot of stigma around that. A lot of parents think, well, my child will never recover socially if that happens. They're gonna be aware of all their peers going off to the next group. Can you talk about just promotion, holding back, all all the noise surrounding that? Absolutely, so there's two parts of it, I would say. You have schools that tend to reach out pretty proactively come January, February, every school year. A lot of times for the kindergartners and the first graders. And they will sometimes send even formal notices that your child is at risk of being retained. And we get a lot of people reaching out about that. A lot of moms who are scared and concerned. And it's interesting, I guess the whole retention argument, uh, again, I've done this for 17 years, met with countless parents and students. After first grade, I have probably in my entire time had seen one child retained uh, in a public school setting. That's it. That is it. Uh, And a lot of it has to do with the different programs that exist once students get to second grade. So, for example, there's the IEP program, individual education plans. So if students are significantly struggling, parents can reach out, start doing different programs, and they typically segment out those children into additional like resource type programs. But as far as the retention of kinder and first grade, this becomes a huge hot button. And it gives parents a lot of pause and concern and what do we do? It's interesting. I I think one of the biggest things we always hear is, oh, we're concerned if we make them repeat first grade or we're concerned if we make them repeat kindergarten, that little Johnny is going to have a lot of social stigma with that and he's going to feel bad about himself. I am of the opinion and have seen this countless times that for a lot of children, 
being retained is not so much an academic issue as more of a maturity issue. And so I tend to always encourage parents, especially of kindergartners, that if you feel, and it's kind of a gut feel, that your student's maturity is not kind of on par with some of their peers, there's nothing wrong with being retained, um, especially if your child's birthdays fall between, I would say, July to December. So the way it typically works, most schools now have measures in place that after September birthdays will sometimes go into their TK transitional kindergarten program. So they've formalized this more because the school system is trying to make sure that students are ready. Um, that's why I try to encourage many, many times, if you are at all on the fence, lean towards keeping them back. There's not going to be a massive issue with it. Students adapt quickly, especially at five, six, seven years old, and you are going to have the benefit of letting them kind of come to the maturity and the ability to handle school as it goes on. So I think that it's one of those things where people feel like they're making a mistake or they did something wrong as a parent. And I do think that, that if you go with that mindset, you're doing a disservice to your kids in the long run. Because again, those two years, kinder and first, are really the only two chances you have to ever put a pause on the progression to the next school year. And one of the most critical things that I brought up on the front end is in fact reading. It is the basis for your student to succeed at all levels and in all subjects of school. Yes, even math now. Uh, parents of some older kids, you've seen that quite a bit in recent years. So, you know, there's a statistic, and I forget exactly what it was. I don't know if you recall off the top of your head. But they've said as you get close to like fourth and fifth grade, based on where you're reading, um, will determine like your success in post, you know, secondary education, going off into like the top high school courses, and then ultimately leading to get into some of the top universities. So the, the better you do and the more prepared you are by the time you're a fifth grader really can determine a lot of your academic path which is kind of crazy because we think, well, you know, kids are gonna have a long time, but the way it's set up because of the steps and the progression as you go from elementary to middle school and then to high school, if you're not in the top classes or kind of put in the higher proficient type of classes with other students like that, it's hard to make up that gap. So yeah, it's, it's critical. To give some international perspective here, so the US education system, for what it is, it's good, it's bad, it's ugly, it's fantastic, what have you. Um, let's compare that to the German education system because you're talking about tracking kids. Now, that's an example of a country that tracks kids to the nth degree. So this third, fourth grade thing, literally at that age, it is nearly impossible. It happens, but it's nearly impossible once your student is placed on track A, B, or C to really get out of that, and I think that's, at least kind of happening in the US. There are shades of that, but you do as a parent have that much more maneuverability. You have that much more influence potentially on how to make changes to your students' courses, to their schools when necessary. So I wanna to jump to that actually, if we could. Um, the idea that there is this kind of perception I think a lot of parents have that the schools and the teachers and all of that, it's untouchable. You're just kind of at their whim and you have to go along with what they say and you're kind of powerless. Yeah, so I, the I, look, I equate it to, as you, you mentioned, nurses and doctors. A lot of us, and I've done studies on this, like you've said, where who do we trust the most? And typically doctors are at the top and teachers are right, right behind. And what happens is if you have a, a child that's in elementary school, you're really kind of in a situation where one, one human typically controls their life for nine months. And what that individual says is kind of doctrine, their way or the highway, so to speak. And what concerns me about that sometimes is if 
a particular teacher is telling you, oh, your student is not capable of doing this or not capable of doing that or needs to focus more on this, we don't question it that often. We don't question the system that often. And I see this even more so in uh, the minority population that we deal with because they, they come in and they don't want to question authority, so to speak. But the reality is, is like if you were to ever have some issue, let's say with your knee and you needed to go to the doctor and they said, we're going to chop off your leg, uh, you're probably going to get a second opinion. We don't do that enough in the education system, in my, in my opinion, and parents need to. Parents need to be advocates for their children. And if you have a situation where it's not feeling like your gut's telling you something's off or that maybe that you want to get some more further ideas of what could be done, go to the school. Go talk to the administration. Don't be scared to do that because it's important to get different perspectives. And talk to individuals like ourselves. That's what we're here for is to kind of go through just the entire options that are at your fingertips. So definitely a problem. And it's something that we kind of need to address in this country because frankly, we have some great, unbelievably fabulous teachers, but let's call it what it is. After year three, teachers have tenure in your districts. They cannot really lose their job unless they do something egregious. And what we, we all know it, we all can talk about it, that we can tell sometimes when we have what we would consider a teacher that's locked in and bringing their all, and there's teachers who are going through the motions. And we kind of don't always get the best luck of the draw when it comes to that. Can you talk about your own experience with your daughter? Yeah, absolutely. So with my own daughter, we kind of experienced this. We had fabulous teachers, kinder, first, second grade, and then third grade, we had some issues. And we were just, you can kind of tell as a parent, and obviously in my profession, I'm able to pick up on it pretty quickly, but the teacher had a difficult time controlling the classroom. And I would go in and volunteer. And again, I encourage you parents, go and volunteer in a classroom and see what it's like in real time in, in living color on how these elementary, elementary school teachers run their classrooms. And it gives you great insight on probably how, what kind of experience your child's having day, day in and day out. And I could tell very quickly in this third grade class of my daughter that this was gonna be a chaotic year. She would get through okay, but her learning was not gonna be where we wanted it to be. And so we, we made the decision to pull her out of the school. Um, yes, I guess some people would say that's extreme, but I don't mess around when it comes to elementary school years. I wanted her to make sure that she had the best chance to succeed, and this is what I encourage other parents to do. You need to make sure that the education your child's getting is top-notch in the public school, private school, whatever you're doing. And a lot, too many people deal with situations, even like maternity leave. And I, I don't begrudge anyone, having children is the be most beautiful gift we get in life. But if you have a teacher that's gonna miss significant amounts of your child's foundational educational years in elementary school, you need to speak up. You need to go talk to the administration because long-term subs do not typically have the credentials nor the ability to teach at the same level as the fully credentialed teachers at their schools. So these things are important. It's something that I highly encourage people because more often than not, when I've sat in meetings with parents of fourth graders, fifth graders, and their students are having issues and have fallen behind, most of them I can pinpoint it to one year, whether it was first or second grade, that did not go swimmingly. Whether it was a bad teacher experience or, again, long-term long absenteeism of that particular regular teacher. While we're on the topic, and because we already discussed holding back promotion, you want to talk about phantom promotion when kids get out of that kinder and first grade range? Yeah, so back to what you were saying, or I was saying earlier, the, the retention notices. You'll get a lot of these, and the parents call. And, Miraculously, for 17 straight years, 
Every student I've seen with the retention notices that come to the house always get promoted when it's May and June. And I, I, it's unbelievable the, the success rate the schools have. But what it comes down to, in all honesty, is that the schools budgetarily do not have the means to keep many students back. Again, like I had said earlier, you have the option to hold your child back, typically in kindergarten and first grade, but they don't like you to do it all the time because it costs them money every single year you keep your kid in the public school system, or any system for that matter, but especially in that system. Fascinating. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. Uh, we focused on elementary quite a bit here. Uh, I'm going to go to the opposite end or the opposite extreme here middle school and high school. So this is a thing that comes up. And if you listen to our episode one, you probably heard us just touch on it for half a second. And that would be, I don't understand. My child gets 100% on their homework assignments, but they're consistently getting B's, C's, D's, or worse on their quizzes or tests. So therefore, my child is a poor test taker. That is absolutely the reasoning behind that. And we hear that time and again. And sadly, there's not a lot of instances in which somebody digs deeper and figures out, why is that? Um, well, let's kind of unravel or peel back the layers of the onion here. Number one, uh, teachers very oftentimes at the middle school and high school level have 150 to 220 kids plus that they are seeing every day or every other day in the instance of block schedule. That is a lot of work. I am <laughs> that, that is a whole ton of work to provide an individualized education experience for 200 plus kids on a daily or semi-daily basis, that is kind of outrageous. Secondly, there is homework. Let's talk about math class. Pretty much every time you have a math class, you are given homework. Uh, maybe it's, you know, one through 37 odd. I don't know why that sticks out in my head. That's a very common thing we yeah, see with our kids. For sure. uh, that's a whole heck of a lot of questions, especially in algebra. Then you get up to geometry and pre-calculus at the high school level. These are convoluted, long questions, and these kids are having to do 10, 15, 20 of them. Multiply that by 200 kids every day or every other day during a week. That's 400 assignments these teachers would have to go through and look at every... They're not going to do that, and I don't blame them necessarily for that. But guess what? If your student puts down numbers that look remotely like they attempted the math, they're probably going to get 100% on their homework assignment for that sole reason. And unfortunately, a good amount of kids... well a whole heck of a lot, have figured out how to game the system. And that is, oh well, I am a stressed out teenager. I have a lot going on socially, athletically, drama club, band, and school. And maybe I'm taking some honors classes. I go to school for six, six and a half hours a day. I have like an hour to eat lunch, maybe real quick after school. Then I need to go to weightlifting for my sport. Then I need to go to practice for three hours. Then I get home and it's seven o'clock and I'm taking a pretty challenging course load, do I have six hours to devote to school? Not really, otherwise it's gonna be one or two in the morning and your kid's gonna be sleep deprived. And oh yeah, guess what? If they do an, an athletic or an extracurricular activity otherwise, they might go to school before school even starts. A lot of schools offer this like, come to school early so you have more time to practice your activities thing. So your kid's getting sleep deprived, they are trying to do their best to hold it all together. And this is even the best, most academically inclined kids. They are dealing with this. Think about the kids who are not as academically inclined and maybe have been passed along. This is just a snowball effect. But long story short, they're not good test takers for the following reasons. They rush to finish their homework, so they don't actually take the time to do what homework was intended to do, which is help you understand, practice the material, practice the things you were talked to about by your teacher or lectured to about in class that same day. You're rushing through it. or 
Better yet, and probably more often for your really overburdened scheduled athletes, you get to school and your friend from your team, maybe they did the math homework. Maybe you did the science homework. Maybe you can swap real quick because you need to make sure you get those points for the homework assignments. However, you're not taking the time to learn this. You're not taking the time to study very often. Frankly, you've never probably been shown how to truly study. Do you take notes? How do you take notes? When do you read the notes you took in class that you were rushing to take down until your hand was cramping? Never. So what's the point of this whole thing? Your kid is not necessarily a bad test taker. It's more just the, the, the convoluted effects of all these other things and how they're just trying to survive, especially when they're overscheduled. And even now let's remove every extracurricular. Let's say you have a student who doesn't do any extracurricular, which I'm not advocating for, but still yet those individuals sometimes will struggle to complete their assignments, but not just complete them, understand them, and then perform on tests. And it is a really easy thing that we've made very popular in society over the last 10, 15, 20 years, which is either A, oh yeah, they just have test anxiety. And I don't mean to denigrate those individuals who maybe absolutely do have an anxiety condition related to pressure-packed moments, but is it is an infinitesimal percentage of the population that is affected by that. And we have made it too popular to say, oh, well, that's the reason. And so some students just kind of accept that. And they go, well, I won't get yelled at if I turn in the homework. I won't be in trouble. I'm just a bad test taker. Oops, I got another D. And guess what? When they get to middle and high school, especially high school, tests and quizzes are worth 70 and 80% of your grade. So what are we really accomplishing here? you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, well, probably a little bit, but I think you hit it really well. I think the reality is parents need to be aware of the big picture here. And it comes down, the big, big word is studying. How to study. We've kind of created these two worlds. You have the homework world, you have the studying world. And when it comes to like, let's say math, for example. Math is not the hardest class to study for, but when you ask a kid if they've studied for math, they kind of look at you cross-eyed, well, I did my math homework. There is kind of that stigma where they always say that. And realistically, the greatest thing about math is if you're in chapter three, guess what your test cuts coming, coming up is gonna be on? Probably chapter three. So if you're on chapter 3.6, if you look at the things you've done from 3.1 to 3.5, that's probably gonna come up on your test in the next couple of weeks. I always talk about that with my daughter. It's, it's something you have to be constantly reviewing. I think reviewing, retaining, practicing, it all kind of comes into the test taking. And part of what, what you're saying, Liam, is this test anxiety, a lot of it comes down because we put a lot of pressure on the night before there's a test where it's like, okay, you have a math test that's covering the things from the last three weeks. Let's try to learn it all again just tonight. On top of you just had a meet for your water polo team and your track team and your and now try to study everything. And it always tends to be, you know, Murphy's law that you have like four tests on the same day. It's, it's almost like the teacher teachers are in cahoots accidentally, I guess, that yeah, go it's ahead. usually Thursdays and Fridays, yeah, and that Thursday happens to be maybe the day after your track meet on Thursdays. Yep, and and so what happens, I always find that there's this pattern where you have the weeks that are intense, where you've got maybe four or five tests that week, and then you have the down weeks. Mm -hmm. The issue is kids take hiatus from school, get the homework done really quickly, like you kind of talked about with the math and everything else, just getting the problems done, but they don't constantly review and practice and review notes and go over everything. And that is what separates the top, top students from the rest of the pack, in my opinion, more so than just the natural, oh, well, he's just smarter. He's just under, he's better at school. It's approach. And the reason that maybe your kid is better at hitting a baseball is the approach and the amount of training they've done on that. And a lot of kids put in this kind of training when it comes to school.
Speaking of extracurricular activities, um, do you have any actionable advice for parents? Because oftentimes you've had a student, your child has played sport X since they were five. Yes. And I do not want to advocate ripping away something that means a lot to them, that they've worked very hard for. Uh, but what about, I mean, how do you draw the line when it comes to sport X or multiple sports X, Y, and Z? And what has to go to accommodate this time that actually needs to be spent practicing school? And, and that's a thing, actually, I want to just like define for everybody out there. Your kids generally don't practice school. They complete the necessary things to keep them out of trouble and for some of them to succeed. But when you ask a student, how much do you practice school? And I've asked that to thousands of high schoolers. They'll say, oh yeah, you know, I mean like three hours a night. Oh, okay, what do you do? Well, I do my homework. That's not practicing, at least in the way that the majority of students are actually approaching their homework. So where, what has to fall here? Like, how does this work? Oh man, we're gonna have probably a whole episode on sports, extracurriculars, and how we've kind of pushed that a little bit too ahead of academics, in my opinion. Uh, so I'm also a little biased because I do live in Irvine, California, which is academic mecca of America, honestly. Um, but I do think that having done this for a long time, and Liam and I can say this, we are both sports nuts. We love everything that watching teams, every, almost every sport that's out there, we have some knowledge about it. But now that I have my own kids, I think what's been fascinating is I don't obsess on them playing 24-7. Or, and my daughter, she plays club soccer. We have a couple practices a week. We go to games on the weekends. But I think that we sometimes put so much priority on that. And I hear it. I mean, I'm walking in Costco or a store and you, you overhear other parents running into each other's conversations. And they talk about how well they're doing in the sports and not so much how, how well they're doing in school. I think we have to reverse that. I think if we want this to not just be a sports nation, but be more like the academic beacon of the world, we have to change our mindset with that. And we are putting too much emphasis and reward on, oh, he's the star athlete or she's so amazing at softball, instead of, wow, that kid is a 4.0 student as a seventh grader. Oh my gosh, they're, they're in all honors AP classes. What a fabulous accomplishment. We need to praise that and make that a focal point of our society. And, and not it doesn't have to just be, oh, your honors academically. And it goes into a whole other element of, we have to praise other achievements, whether it's they're really awesome with building. Like when it comes to, there's Roblox, there's Legos, there's all these things that can help kids develop intellectually. We need to put that more in the, in the forefront of our minds as parents and as a society because otherwise we're going to have kids doing you know dance till seven at night, five days a week. And I mean, not everyone's going to be a ballerina. And, and that worries me because that's where we're always up against is crazy extracurricular practice schedules. And I'll push this to you, Liam, since you deal with so much of the college preparation. A lot of parents will come back at us with that and ask about, well, it's for a scholarship. So can you get into that a little bit on where that ends up playing out, not only for the getting into a university, but then the aftermath of graduating from that university one day? Oh, sure. Uh, actually, I wanna fast track your question to the latter part of that. All right, cool. Your student actually gained a scholarship to some school that probably wouldn't have been on their top 10 list had it purely been for academics and it wasn't the fact that they were getting a 35% scholarship for their baseball playing abilities and their pinch running skills. Um, now, sorry, if you're fast out there, good for you. Uh, but 
as we fast forward, it's not only like if you have that golden ticket idea that my kid's going to get to go to college for free and student debt is a massive problem. It absolutely is. And we need to make smart decisions around that. And guess what? We're going to do an episode on that now because that just popped into my head. But long story short, your kid's going to get to this university that has an okay academic reputation, let's say, and that's perfectly fine. Where you go to your undergraduate institution is not always the predetermining factor of success. However, your kid's now there almost on the school's dime to be an employee of the school to a certain extent. You work for the school now, kid. You're getting up at 5 a.m. for weightlifting. You thought your schedule for baseball in high school was aggressive? Get out of here. You're going to eat, live, breathe, sleep all this. So what does that allow you to do? Does that allow you to major in mechanical engineering and succeed and be on the dean's list every year? Uh, probably not. Also, your coaches are probably going to steer you towards majors that are not as uh, well, one, academically challenging, uh, two, require as much time or study. So you're going to graduate. And, and maybe you guys won a, a, I don't know, random division three title. That's awesome. Did you make it pro? Yeah, probably not. Statistically, your kid is not going to be a pro. And, and we've actually dealt with a few kids who have come through our centers. They became pros. And that's awesome. But what are they doing now? Those pro careers don't last forever. And I'm not going to say who, of course, but there are some things in there. Yeah. Uh, and... By the way, those kids went to pretty dang good academic institutions on top of it all. Yes. But there's a second side to this. So therefore, your kid has basically not learned the skills to thrive academically in high school. They got by, they got whatever sliding skill, GPA, slash SAT, slash ACT, slash AP scores they needed to, to get into this university. And they got 35 or 55% off tuition. By the way, full rides are a really rare thing. Uh, and that would mean your kid's an absolute stud, which that's great for them. But that absolute stud is not going to be allowed very often by the coaching staff to major in something that would make them an academic stud too. So they're going to graduate. They're going to have minimal student debt or less. That's cool. What are you going to do now? You didn't make the, the Olympic softball team because there's only 16 people who do that? That's rough. Those odds are bad. Very bad. So what, what do we do then? So here's like on the other side of this equation. A lot of people come to us, and I know they say this to you all the time, well, I don't know if she's really going to go to a four-year university because she doesn't have a 4.0. <laughs> what would you say about that? This is almost, I love how this is a polarizing conversation in terms of ages, because this is kind of like those parents who are concerned about holding their kids back. There's like this really extreme anxiety and stress and like concrete thought process, at least seemingly, that... My kid, there's an underconfidence about getting into schools X, Y, or Z, or there's an extreme overconfidence. Uh, I personally have helped thousands of kids apply to the top 50 schools in the U.S., uh, and I've seen it where you have a kid who works their tail off academically, and they are involved, and they volunteer at the hospitals and the Red Cross Club, and they're an e-board member of this and that, and I don't, all the stuff. Like I can't even get into it, and that's great. And these kids have like a 4.7 GPA. Uh, when the SATs mattered, which by the way, they still do, um, just a little, you know, less so at certain school systems, uh, which shall not be named. You see. Long story short, they have phenomenal, phenomenal application credentials. And I say, okay, so where do you want to go? Thinking this kid's going to tell me Caltech, MIT, Stanford, UT Austin, Michigan, great, great schools. And they go, well, you know, I'm kind of concerned. I don't I don't even think I'd be able to get into, uh, I don't want to name a school that's a little easier to get into, but I wouldn't get in there. And 
I look at them like, are you serious? And, and they've heard all these horror stories about the kid who was basically a valedictorian at a high school not being able to gain admission to a very average school on some fluky thing. Maybe they had something else about their application that caused that, but they take this as gospel and they internalize it and go, I'm not good enough, which is insane to me. So like the hyperbolic nature of how people think about their college prospects is outrageous. And then on the other side, not to say anything negative about people with 3.2 GPAs, but you're probably not going to Caltech or Stanford. It's just a fact of life right there. Yeah. Uh, or you throw a football really far and they're making an exception for you. So anyway, on that side, I talk to these kids. I go, where do you want to go? What do you want to major in, first of all? And they go, uh, I don't know, business or something. That's a very typical answer for somebody who hasn't really looked into it too much. They go, well, I was thinking, um, you know, UC Berkeley, University of Virginia. By the way, those are two of the top three public institutions in the U.S., Okay, well, what was your SAT score? Because maybe you had a 3.3 GPA, but you got 1,600, and you just kill it in terms of that, and you were just kind of lazy. All right, fine. Some schools might accept you. Oh, it was, a, you know, 950. I can't believe the naivety of some of these kids, and I feel very badly for them because I have to be the one to tell them that's not realistic. And people don't like to hear that. But what kind of service are we as, you know, anybody advising somebody on college or this whole ring of college advisors and all that, which is kind of murky and ugly anyway? Who are we uh, to say, yeah, apply to these 10 schools, bud. You're going to do great and get in nowhere. It's insane to me. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think one last thing we can touch on on this is when you get to college, and I know we kind of going out of our K through 12, but when you get to university. But that's the end game, regardless if you're absolutely. a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or a 17-year-old. For sure. We also have to start being very honest about the majors that are going to... Why, why do we go to university? Why, and Liam kind of referenced it. We are indebted to these universities. We have a huge student loan prog problem in this country. And a lot of us that go in this mindset of, I just want to get them a scholarship for a university, but then they're taking you know, underwater basket weaving for their major. That doesn't equate to any paying job after they're going to be doing their sport and studying. So what is the benefit of this scholarship if they're not actually able to study anything that, quite honestly, is going to pay in the real world? It's a big question we all have to start asking ourselves. It is challenging to be an engineering major and be a star football quarterback. And if we don't start realizing this, we are putting out into the world a lot of college graduates, sorry I'm doing air quotes on a podcast, but that don't really have any useful skills for the working world. And that is something we've really got to start honing in on. So this could go on. We will get into more no. of these topics. Oh, go. You, yeah. you just put me on to something. Fine. Go. We're gonna... This isn't necessary. No, this is a misconception. It is college is the only way to a brighter future. And this mm -hmm. might be an unpopular take, or you would think so for somebody who makes their living and works with kids on attempting to get them into college. But it's also mentoring and guiding these kids to a future that's actually going to see them succeed. What America also has a massive problem with is trade schools. They, they are not up to standard uh, for a lot of the other modern economies in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, there are fantastic careers that can be forged in plumbing, in welding, in all types of things that are not traditionally academic. And I have to be perfectly honest, there are some of these kids who, because they've been conditioned year after year by their parents and friends, the expectation of society is you go to college, no matter what. And, and yes. let's call a spade a spade. There are some students, by the time they, achieve, they, they reach 16 years of age, they're not school inclined. It is just not something that has been forged within them. It's not something that they've built up in themselves. It, and these are often the kids who are unfortunately passed along. But they are very skilled when it comes to putting things together. When it, 
comes to looking at something mechanical. By the way, for the record, I am not mechanical. I would get dusted by these kids if I had to put something together. Same here. You ever see me assemble a piece of Ikea furniture? We've like, tried and it's been very sad. No. And, and so, look, that and there, no skill is necessarily inherently better than the other. But when these kids who have these alternative skills but are not necessarily an ideal piece of the educational puzzle as it currently stands in America... They've still been told, well, you need to go to community college and you need to take all these general education requirements while you work a separate job. And then you need to go get a piece of paper from some very average institution in something that's probably not going to be super employable because that's what we expect of you. And now you're 24 because maybe it took you a little longer to get through it and you have this piece of paper and now you realize I could do these technical things that are amazing and you're in student debt because society said you should go to school. So I, I'm not going to sit here and say college is absolutely for everybody. It would probably behoove me to do that, but absolutely not. Um, we're, we're trying to be real here. Yeah, and, and I think the big thing here is college can be for a lot of individuals, but use it for what it's designed to, well, what it was designed for, and that was to train students to be ready to become active members of society and to make a living. And I see too many parents with kids living at their households until they're in their 30s. And this is, I don't think, this is not where we all want it to be. So again, it starts early on and all of us have to do a better job of kind of just being realistic about what's going on. Last thing, last, last, last thing. You ready? Sure. Here's a misconception that I heard dozens of times, dozens of times in our learning centers. Oh, we, you know, we don't really need to come in to try to bridge the gap that's been created by COVID and the school learning interruptions. Uh, the school, you know, the schools are just going to do that in September. They're going to catch my kid up. No, no doubt. Remember the equation I posed a little while ago with 200 kids? And let's even scale it down in elementary school. I don't know. Maybe you're responsible. Yeah. In like second grade for what? 30 kids, 40 kids, right? Uh, and the disparity of learning amongst those kids who are five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old is far more massive in all likelihood because they really didn't have the foundation to begin with. You're going to expect all of these teachers, even the best teacher in the world, is not going to be able to work individually with 40 students in the midst of a school day. Some kids who didn't lose that much because their parents were proactive and they made sure they were still doing their studies when grades weren't really a thing, when expectations were at zero, versus the kids whose parents said, well, we want to take a family trip. It's been a while. And now their kids are a grade level and a half behind in everything, even though they were at grade level before. Yep. What do you have to say? I mean, so we're going to probably dive into this in our next episode where McKinsey and company did their huge analysis of the education system in the United States and the effects of COVID. And I think realistically what we have to, to kind of realize is parents are a little bit ho like, or again, that back to that trust. It goes back to the trust that we were talking about earlier in this, this discussion. And that is... The schools are overwhelmed with trying to fix this problem that has never existed before. So how are they going to be able to make up, and, and from this study, we'll hit on it later, like I said, but for, kids have lost four to five months of academic knowledge because of COVID. Every student across the board in our country is four to five months behind. And that's average. Behind where they were. Behind where they were. So guess where a huge disparity exists? low-income areas, minority populations that don't have the same like English aptitude in the household. So all of this is going to create long-term issues. And yes, you were talking about the younger students and we kind of have honed in on them a lot even on the previous episode we were talking about it. But this McKinsey article talks about how the older elementary students 
probably you're actually worse off hmm. because they're more silent. They're able to function in a Zoom setting and do like it seemed like they're checked in, but they it didn't seem as chaotic. So a lot of the parents were putting more focus, if you had two kids, on the little one that's five or six years old and letting your nine or 10 year old kind of do their thing because at least they weren't throwing crayons at the computer screen. And so they, what they've kind of seen, are even falling behind further on some of the standardized testing that have started to come out because of this. So. We are, we are in for a, a definite uh, adventure, uh, if put it mildly, and we are here to help, but the schools are going to, to have some problems. So I, I think the other thing that concerns me is that a lot of parents are putting more focus on letting the kids do extracurricular and getting back into that and hoping that this problem self-corrects by the school doing it. And I think they're gonna be very, mis very uh, disappointed maybe in a couple years when their students are still struggling. I learned something today. The older elementary students are the ones who potentially suffered more, but we will get into that next time. I am very animated about this podcast and the future ones we do. Uh, any parting word for our listeners? Just that this is a good time of year. We're in October. I know things seem like you actually have more connection with your students' teachers at school. Uh, just spend some time. Go through their, their portals if they have the grade system. Uh, sit down with your kids and, and go over how school's going and, and what they're working on and just kind of get a sense of how they're handling everything from math to their reading assignments to everything from science projects. Just dive in there a little bit more than typical years because I think it's really critical that we see how they're adapting. Critical indeed. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everyone.